Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to a Why Can't We podcast called This Sport Podcast. My name is Peter Harding. And I'm Sean Malone. Each month we'll bring you up to date with disability sports stories from around the world. We'll also be joined by a few people involved in disability sports. Why Can't We has been running since 2012 after I saw the Paralympics in London. After attending as a spectator, I wondered why we don't see coverage of disability sports on a regular basis. Disability sports happen all the time, not just every four years. So I started the campaign to help raise awareness of disability sports and the campaign has grown from there. These podcasts are made to help you keep up to date with para-sports, for relief athletes to sports fans. Or if this is the first time you're hearing about disability sport, please follow on Why Can't We social media or visit whycantwe.co.uk and make sure you subscribe to this podcast the campaign can't carry on without your support so join us each month for an update on this sport pod i'd just like to announce that we have been voted one of the top 15 para sport podcasts by a host of panelists by feedspot so thank you again for listening and please make sure you share this podcast subscribe to this podcast and let's get the word out there that disability sport is still happening So thank you so much for coming to join us on This Sport Pod and this is our second series. We're hoping to bring you lots more interviews and talks to para-sports people looking at the world of disability sports and trying to bring you all the stories as well. Remember to go to whycan'twe.co.uk, look at the news stories if you want to keep up to date and we've got an amazing win to Paralympics, we've got the Invictus Games and so many more events like the Commonwealth Games coming up as well. So please do check out whycan'twe.co.uk and make sure that you are staying up to date with disability sports. So since our last recording, we have had an amazing Paralympics and congratulations to all the GB athletes who won medals there. I would go through all the names, but there are too many to name. So just congratulations as a whole collective to all of the Paralympians. It was a fantastic result and I really, really, really can't wait to see what happens next time when they're finally in Paris and hopefully we can all go and actually watch them live. I'll now let you enjoy this podcast where we were live at Media City with Andy Stevenson himself. And as I said before, it was one of our favourite interviews, so please do enjoy. Hello and welcome to This Sport Pod. We are happily joined by Andy Stevenson, or, or hopefully happily in Andy's <laughs> okay with that. Yeah, I'm uh, more than happy with that. Okay, that's good. Uh, so, Andy Johnson, choose yourself. Yeah, so um, I'm Andy Stevenson. I guess 
The most recent, or the best way to describe myself, is that I presented the Paralympics for Five Live, and I do bits of other um, presenting and, and reporting for the BBC in general. And uh, here I am. Yeah, it's nice to be with you. It's nice to be in Salford, actually, because I live down down south near London, and uh, I don't really get up here very often anymore. And I mean, every time I come, there's a new set of restaurants and cafes and stuff open, and new tower blocks and things. So it's yeah, it's really. Um, got a great vibe to it and uh, it's brilliant to see the progress and the BBC at the centre of it Amazing, it's always good to be up north Yeah, yeah I, I, I got a coffee, I've been doing some golf presenting this morning on the radio and so I got coffee sort of bright and early this morning and I was <laughs> I was sort of slightly thrown because I'd forgotten that people actually speak to you and are friendly up there. You know, I'm so used to just yeah, somebody grunting at me from behind the, the counter and just, you know, barely asking what I want, let alone anything else. And, the, you know, the, the lad behind the counter this morning was chatting away about all sorts and it was lovely, yeah. So it's nice, nice to be here. Nice to have you up here as well. Uh, and it's actually one of our first podcasts we're able to see in person as well because uh, obviously we've done lots of them through Zoom yeah. um, and Sean we're able to now sit here. So how does it feel to be seeing in the BBC and actually seeing a person we can interview in, in real life. It's, it's more reality now, isn't it? Like when everything's over Zoom, it kind of don't feel real, does it? So it's good now you get to see people face to face and it's much more personal than like through a TV. Yeah, yeah. Right. I hope I'm not a disappointment. <laughs> not at all, not at all. <laughs> uh, so Andrew, so let's go back to you then. And you were um, born in Northern Ireland yeah. now. Um, and anyone listening to this won't hear the Northern Ireland accent so <laughs> no. how long are you there for? So basically the story behind that is an, um, yeah so I was born in Newtonards near Bangor in, in Northern Ireland in 1981 and my dad so this is a good one for any Back to the Future film, uh, film fans of which I am one my dad actually worked for DeLorean the car manufacturer um, oh, yeah. the, the DeLoreans in the, in the Back to the Future films and um, they'd set up their factory in Belfast and all of those DeLoreans were, were made in Northern Ireland and so my dad got a job with them and moved um, moved with my mum across to Northern Ireland and then I was born and then DeLorean went bust so, um, and anyone who knows DeLorean, the the owner John DeLorean was, turned out to be a bit of a crook so the, yeah. the company went under and um, you know, my dad lost his job and everybody lost their jobs and we were on the move again. Weirdly um so we left I think when I was about two years old and we moved to Scotland <laughs> we moved to near Glasgow and I didn't pick up an accent there either because uh-huh. we moved again when I was five down to the <laughs> south of England so yeah I mean my accent's all over the place and um, my mum was actually from the Republic of Ireland as well so I, f- I do feel even though I was only in Northern Ireland until I was two I feel quite a strong tie to the island of Ireland. You know, all of my yeah. family, like big big family, were Irish, and I'd sort of grown up, you know, going to Irish parties and Irish weddings and things. So, yeah, even though there's no accent, I do, I do feel kind of Irish as yeah. such. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. very nice. Um, and, and so, were you at school in Northern Ireland or the, in? No, so I started school when we moved down to the south of England in in Newbury, um, and did all of my, you know, primary and secondary school in mm. in Newbury and um, yeah and then went off to to uni and things like that but still still kind of live I've gradually moved closer and closer to London as I've got older and sort of you know work reasons and things and so yeah my wife and I live live near Windsor now so it's sort of within reach of, of London 
yeah. and as I say, you know, it's nice to come and make these trips up to Salford as well. Yeah. So how how was school life for you then? Yeah, Quite I mean, easy or um, into yeah. sports as well. And uh, so I mean, primary school. I think kind of the important thing here is that I went to like mainstream primary and and secondary schools. Uh, the primary school had a a kind of disability unit, but again, you're talking kind of late late eighties. That was kind of me and you know a couple of people in in wheelchairs, and I I think I think one or two had cerebral palsy and things like that. But you know special needs under that title was probably in, in its very early days and certainly like the wider special needs you see now with you know autism and various things like that that those kids were there of course but it wasn't you know recognized at that time so really the the unit at my primary school was very much a physical disability unit I would say and that was great because um, you know I was in mainstream lessons with with all of the other kids and my friends and things, but I had helpers on hand um, to assist me in class. And there were some sort of extracurricular things like you know we would go for sort of specific kind of swimming lessons, and we had horse riding lessons actually with with riding for the disabled. And so you know it was a it was a nice mix. You know I was yeah. able to go and play football in the playground with my mates, but then equally I you know we were taken off to do. You know certain things as a smaller group as yeah. well um and then secondary school my my parents fought very very hard to get me into the local mainstream secondary school so that i didn't have to go to a school that was miles away you know it was local school sort of around the corner from where we lived and yeah i mean that was that was vital to be honest for me because it meant then i was just in amongst um I'm not going to say normal because that would be offensive, but just I was in amongst able-bodied, um, yeah, able-bodied kids who, you know, they had to get used to me rather than me having to get used to them. If you yeah, know, what yeah, I mean, of course. if I can put it like that. And again, I, you know, I had helpers in classes and things like that. But again, I was able to sort of broadly take part in everything ordinarily at school. And mm. you know, actually, the mates I made at, at that secondary school are, are still my best mates now. Um, X, X number of years <laughs> later so um, but I mean you know I, was, I had a happy time I, I, I suppose kind of laced within your question I guess is a kind of when you say how was school I suppose the implication of that is you know did I did I ever experience bullying and things like that which actually I I didn't I mean I was never like bullied bullied I was aware of um you know kids probably pointing at me and yeah. possibly even laughing at me making jokes about me within their own little you know groups, groups. but yeah. you know those they weren't anybody within my friendship group as it were so and I never it never got any more serious than than that and I don't want to downplay that because obviously that's not very nice either and, and lots of people listening might have might be having those experiences now so I don't want to downplay it but it's not like I was ever you know sort of properly kind of verbally abused or, or you, you know beaten up or had my lunch money stolen or anything like that it was just at the level of sort of you know pointing and maybe the odd joke which incidentally I still I still encounter now you know as an adult right, okay. yeah so but yeah a happy time definitely a happy and time and were you involved in sports at all did you how, how interested in sports were you at that age yeah so uh, 
playing football in the playground I think is key you know I, I think because I've got an artificial leg so it's pretty clear that I wasn't going to make teams if you know okay. what I mean that it, so it never really got beyond just playing football with my mates at, at break time but I was happy with that you know I mean sure yeah it would have been nice to break into teams properly but um, it wasn't really ever something that troubled me and then I had a brilliant PE teacher who I will credit by name because in, in the area that I live he's a, he's a total legend he's in his 80s now and he's still refereeing football matches at weekends and he's still oh, right. sort of doing bits of coaching I think as far as I'm aware so my PE teacher was a guy called Doug, Doug Cook and um, when it came round to uh, sports like rugby yeah. or cricket that were going to be I'll tell you the two actually it was rugby and hockey actually two sports that were going to be trickier for me um, he really encouraged me to take part by refereeing and umpiring and encouraged me to learn learn the rules and things like that so when when my class were playing rugby I would go out and do as many of the sort of simple skills drills as I could then when it came to you know the end of the lesson and you'd play a 10 minute match I would become the referee yeah. and actually again that was a brilliant thing for my confidence and I don't mean this in a big-headed way, but my status in terms of it then... I would be refereeing matches that included some of the lads who might be poking fun at me in the in the playground, right. if you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. And suddenly I was referee, and I was able to sort of have an authority over them, either imaginary or perceived, but it was an authority over yeah. them. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I can't thank that, that teacher in particular enough... Um, because that, I, I guess, kind of kept me in. It kept me in the PE lessons and in yeah, the sport lessons, even when I couldn't necessarily like take a full, full part. So building up that resilience, yes, yeah. and yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite commendable from your teacher. That's good idea, I think, to get you involved with the refereeing and stuff instead. Yeah, <clears throat> I remember there was one. <laughs> this was outside of school, but I'm pretty sure, like at the end of. I don't know, it was like a summer holiday at maybe end of year 10 or 11 or something. Um, uh, a bunch of my mates, I think it was sort of like the football team, you know, like the A team or the B team or something. They decided to just organise a big match down the local rec sort of thing. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> I was referee. And with my consent, they sellotaped a yellow card to the back of my right arm and a red card to the back of my left arm and then I had the whistle around my neck with a, with a sort of string thing so I could and then you know I would walk up to people and I'd sort of bring my arm in front of my chest to show them the yellow card it was, I mean it was a joke but it was it was funny and um, yeah adapting in sports so yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great uh, and then obviously moving forward in terms of your own career and different start moving from school life into mm. working life and um did you go to university? I think you I did, did yeah, and yeah. studied journalism. So, so why did you choose journalism? What made you choose that? Well, so this this is absolutely tied to that feeling of or um, that kind of growing awareness that I guess we all have at some point, but maybe it came to me earlier. I am not going to be a Premier League footballer, or I'm not going to be, you know, PGA Tour golf or anything like that. Yeah. But how can I stay within sport? How can I stay within these things that I love and? you know actually to be honest from a pretty early age when I was watching sport on the telly I was watching it as much for the presentation style and the commentary style as the play itself you know if I was watching a live match of the day or something 
I'd be kind of watching what in my day it was sort of Des Lynham really just before yeah. you know Gary obviously Gary Lineker obviously came along but my absolute hero is Des Lynham and it's because you know seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old even older actually I'd be watching these matches and I'd be really taking note of how he was presenting the programme and what he was good at what how, how he sort of brought guests in and you know everybody knows him for his kind of wit and, and this lovely manner he had and I was trying to soak up as much of that as possible and you know there's, there's lots of other presenters and commentators I can name but Des and actually Barry Davis as well was also a massive yeah. hero yeah. to me I've still got a photo of Des Lynham in my downstairs toilet at home genuinely <laughs> a signed photo poster or just just, uh, just a, a picture a little picture <laughs> in a frame um, signed by the great man nice so I thought, okay, yeah, one day I'd love to be a TV presenter. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I thought about radio necessarily at that point, but just I'd love to be a sports presenter, let's say. And uh, one summer holiday, I started writing out, um, a bit nerdy actually, like every single day of the summer holiday, I sort of drew out a kind of fake back page of a newspaper, you know, and I'd write a headline and then I'd even sort of draw the space where the photo would have gone and I just sort of scribbled out like a basic story and I'd, I was like, okay, yeah, I want to be a, I want to be a sports journalist in the paper. And then, the big thing that changed for me was when I went to university at Warwick. I got involved in the student radio. Right. So actually, I wasn't studying journalism at that point. I was studying English, and and then, and then I got involved in the student radio, and that was, you know, that it was brilliant. It was just a, um, it, you know, I suppose in a sense it kind of changed my life because it opened my eyes to, wow, you know, you can actually talk about sport rather than having yeah. even to write about it maybe there was a bit of laziness in there but I was like this is so much more fun talking about sport than having to write about it and then yeah so I sort of just fell in love with radio then and yeah. I was like right this is absolutely what I, what I want to do and it was then that I went and did the, the post-grad journalism course at Cardiff and um, started at my local BBC station BBC Radio Berkshire and everything then just sort of snowballed from there yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah I mean the it's always been a passion yeah, the rest is history, and and yeah, even now, I when I watch sport or listen to sport on the radio, I, I'm I'm really trying to pay attention to the presenters mm. and commentators as much as possible. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm a Why Can't We journalist, and you can check out my articles at WhyCan'tWe.co.uk. When you were going through through learning about sports and watching various sports. Were you watching disability sport as well, or were you watching just the main stream everybody sports, would you say? I'll be absolutely honest with you. To be honest, no, I wasn't. I wasn't watching disability sport because, <laughs> largely because there wasn't much of it on the telly or the radio when I, you know, when I was growing up through my teenage years. So let's see, so 81, I was born in, so, you know, 16 years old, 1997, what coverage of the Atlanta Paralympics was there? You know, I should make a point here that I think some people criticise the BBC, who had the rights at that time to the Paralympics, and they go, "Well, look at what Channel Four are doing now." You know, it's crazy. Like when you look back at, um, I think, I think the Atlanta Paralympics. In fact, even through you know Sydney, Athens, even Beijing, I think the Beijing Paralympics were the last one the BBC had the TV rights for before Channel yeah. Four. And I think it was a kind of highlights program each night. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's easy to look back and criticise the BBC and say, well, why didn't they do wall-to-wall live coverage like Channel 4 do now? I, I think that's a bit 
a bit wrong to say that because Channel 4 took the rights when London 2012 came round. You know, if the BBC had had London 2012 Paralympics, I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't have just had a, a, a nightly highlights programme. The BBC would have also committed live hours and then it would have snowballed f- for them just as it has for Channel 4. Yeah. So, sure, I mean, you know, I, I, I worked with, with Tani Gray-Thompson in Tokyo for Five Live and, of course, when she looks back at all her medal moments, they were all packaged up within highlights programmes, really. Yeah. So. Yeah. I absolutely get that when athletes of that era look back, they probably feel very miffed that the coverage was was so was so little, was yeah. so small. And I suppose the spectators as well. You know, you look at David Weir and how he yeah. almost gave up the sport. It's a, it's a great it is a great point. I just think that it's kind of easy to then use that to bash the BBC. Yeah, I think it's a wider thing that the country and the media as a whole didn't really wake up to Paralympic sport until London 2012 basically yeah. and, and of course that is largely down to Channel 4 but it's, it's, it's not just down to Channel 4 it's just at that moment in time and the successes at London 2012 and the sort of stars that were born at that Games um, they were the ones that sort of changed the game basically yeah. so yeah I mean growing up it was football it was golf it was you know watching things like Wimbledon and Olympics, but not Paralympics really. And um, you know, my awareness of disability sport didn't really come in till till much later, to be honest. And I guess also it's sports with the funding as well. You see, National Lottery have now brought into lots of the athletes and paying mm. the athletes to improve their game. And you see them winning more gold medals and more medals. Yeah. Do you think that we are, as the media, starting to pick up on stories because of gold medals and because of these winnings? Or do you think it's just an improvement in general? I think it's just more about that moment in time where London had the Games, you know, and uh, clearly the success is a massive factor as well. If, if, you know, if you imagine London 2012 Paralympics and maybe Great Britain had won, you know, single-figure gold medals, yeah. then we wouldn't be where we are now. You know, I think it's just coincided. You're absolutely right to mention the lottery funding as well because that's, that's a huge difference and it's a sort of bingo game you play when you work on the Olympics and Paralympics now to see like when is the athlete going to mention the national lottery you know but I mean absolutely fair play you know quite rightly they should Um, I think everything just came together in London to to mean that it it sort of then exploded into what it is now and then obviously there was a sort of trauma of the Rio Paralympics almost not happening Mm -hmm. the Tokyo Paralympics um, being postponed and things and I, I think Everybody, everybody's looking at Paris now. Certainly everybody in Europe, I guess, is looking at Paris now. It's back in a time zone that suits everybody. It's going to be prime time again. The British team just seem to get better and better and better. Mm-hmm. And I think Paris will, will match London, if, if not exceed it, really, just for the kind of scope of coverage it, it gets. So, you know, roll on Paris. Obviously, we've got Beijing to come in between. You know, certainly in terms of getting Paralympic sport out there more than it is I think I think Paris will be another another game changer to be honest yeah do you think that um, as a broadcaster yourself you've seen a shift in terms of the way that the media are reporting on disability not just sport but also disability in general and do you think it's improving or do you think things are not improving as much as they're shifting so I think one of the key things 
on that subject is you are beginning to see more disabled people on television programs full stop and that's you know quiz shows um, you know talent shows like the Bake Off and Strictly and soap operas um, I mean I've never met her but but Rose isn't it the girl on Strictly at yeah. the moment I mean it makes me well up when you know she surely she got to win as well <laughs> well I, I think she I think she probably will I mean it's obviously a close run thing yeah. isn't it there's, a, there's plenty of good dancers on the series this this time round but you know she, she's been handed an opportunity there and boy has she grabbed it I mean she is doing incredible things and she's doing it so um I don't want to say so nicely that sounds really lame she's doing it so it's such a light touch yeah. she's not sort of ramming it you know she's not sort of ramming it down people's throats which I think turns people off I think it's been a fairly subtle gradual um, you know the, the programme and the programme have done very well with it as well you know they introduced the signer early, or, early on and then gradually the other dancers her partner Giovanni has sort of started doing the signing and then they had a lovely VT last week and then obviously the moment where they the music stopped yeah it's I mean it, and and funnily enough actually you know Sean I, I, I saw the goggle box you know the reaction yeah. to it on goggle box and you can't you can't buy that kind of exposure for that world you know for that specific disability and I think you know the more those kind of things happen the better we saw I can't is it Bryony the, the, the lady on the Bake Off a couple of years ago yes. who was missing yeah. Yeah. missing part of her hand or missing one hand I yeah. think wasn't it and um, again it was it was all done so so well in that it wasn't like well here's Bryony she's got one one arm you know one hand one arm whatever it is it was Bryony was just introduced as one of the contestants and it was just over time you spotted, oh, okay, right, she's miss, missing the hand. And then yeah. I think in a later episode, she, you know, there was a sort of VT with her at home cooking and she got to explain it a little bit more. And so, yeah, you know, these are, I think these are the ways that you'll get more disability awareness in, in a country, in a society, is by just... Normalizing it, would you say? Yeah, normalizing it, but just normalizing it in a, in a, in a sort of it's just happening kind of way. You know, yeah. not in a kind of right. We are going to put a disabled person on Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. We are going to have a disabled contestant on the chase, or what? You know, it's just it just happens, yeah. and there's not there's not a massive fuss about it at the at the point where it starts. But then those people, like Rose is doing now, make a huge impact just by being there you know and just by doing it and you know and she as I say she's brilliant I would love love the chance to get to meet her and interview her at some point in the future but I think um, they're priceless they are priceless moments and the Paralympians do the same of course when they have their window of yeah I'm sure you're (laughs) going to ask me about this but when they have their kind of window of coverage yeah um, the Paralympians a lot of them do a great job both in terms of the sporting achievement and and also like almost away from the sport as well yeah I guess Sean do you think that you've seen more on Gogglebox and also just watching TV more yeah well when I'm watching TV like I think what's been mentioned there is a great point of when there's someone on TV with a disability not making it necessarily a huge thing the fact that they're living with a disability just slowly introducing it as part of the programming of this is a thing because you're not saying 
this person is a disabled individual and that is the only aspect of them there's a whole different side of them and all that stuff their disability doesn't define them and I think that moment on Strictly Come Dancing was a real powerful moment like me watching that I was amazed I was sat next to my mum she started filling up and everything but yeah it was a real good moment I have the same on, on, on the radio in that we don't come on and go you know the jingle doesn't say like Paralympic Games with Andy Stevenson who's disabled you know like yeah. or <laughs> you know when I'm presenting the golf it's not like um, oh you know going to hand back to Andy now in the studio he's disabled by the way do you know what I mean it's, yeah. it's, it's what what happens instead is that when there is a good opportunity I I will mention my disability or say at the Paralympics Tanny would bring something up that I would then talk about on the golf you know I play golf so there are moments on the golf in fact just this morning we had a disabled golfer on with us and very naturally then Ian Carter says Andy you know you play golf yourself you know extended clubs or you're you know you're missing your arms how do you play and it's all just it's all just smooth there's a reason you know there's a reason for it again you're not hitting people over the head it's just all happening naturally during the Paralympics funnily enough I was on air uh, during the day with um, Naga Manchetti, for example, mm-hmm. I've never met Naga. She's never met me. I don't think she would have necessarily even known that I was disabled. But just very naturally, one day, again, I think we got talking about golf. She, cause she, she loves golf, and I said, "Well, actually, I, I play golf, and I've got extended club." And we just had this like natural chat about it. And I think that's it's just a much it's a much better way of going about things yeah. than than just having these really like um, sort of obvious sort of, I would call them like almost um, clanger moments not not I don't mean clanger as in a mistake but just it's kind of dong you know yeah. like, oh here's, here's the disability moment type yeah. thing it, yeah. it, it, it can't be like that it shouldn't be like that no, I agree I agree and we, we, you mentioned it earlier on in this bit but in terms of the coverage now one thing that work on we're trying to do is sort of raise awareness of disability sports not just throughout about once every four years of the Paralympics happening or in this case Winter Paralympics which are happening soon mm. um, but we're trying to raise it throughout the whole time and saying that disability sports happens all the time what do you think about that and do you think that that is something that the media needs to improve on or right well this will be a long answer because okay. there's okay. a few elements to this okay um, so I think... back everyone <laughs> <laughs> yeah get yourself a cup of tea I think so number one yeah I think um, the more disabled people that are involved in the media side of things, the better. And even just from my point of view, on Five Live now, um, we did a show on Thursday night looking ahead to the Winter Paralympics. Okay, yeah. it's looking ahead to the Paralympics, but within that, you know, we talked about skiing World Cups and World Championships, and we had, um, there's a new, they're trying to get together a squad, a, a female para ice hockey squad yeah. for the first time and we had players on for that okay inside the games isn't it inside so the games yeah. <laughs> and you know okay it's all focusing in on the Paralympics but we talk about you know sort of wider stuff almost just you know um, accidentally almost but by by having say me on the team and I'm going to constantly be on the lookout for these disability sports stories I've got a direct line to the producers and editors and I think just as I say, almost by accident, it will happen that there will be more Paralympic sport coverage on Five Live 
just by having somebody like me around. I don't, I don't, again, I don't mean that in a big headed way. I don't mean by having me around, but just somebody like me yeah. or, or yourself or other people around the BBC and other media outlets with disabilities. I just think the natural chain of things will mean there's more disability coverage. Yeah. You know, because you'll be coming into work saying, oh, you know, should we do something on this? And I'll be doing the same and blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's one thing. Secondly, I think people, I don't want to say it have to accept, but, you know, TV channels and particularly commercial TV channels are ratings driven. And Channel 4 have kind of experimented in recent years with putting other disability sports events on the TV and they've not got good viewing figures and it's not been done again. Yeah. But that's the case with, you know, any genre of programming. You know, if for whatever reason, you know, Gogglebox's viewing figures plummeted, the programme wouldn't be on anymore. You know, I mean, it's not going to happen because that's got a solid sort of base now. Sure, don't panic. No, exactly. You're all right. You're okay. You're safe. Um, So I think people have to understand those pressures and, 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 um, you know, we... When I was at Channel 4, we, we put the 2017 Para World Athletics Championships on every single night live on, albeit on More 4 rather than Channel 4, but yeah. it was there live and not many people watched it. Yeah. And so I can't really see that happening again. Um, but that brings me on to my sort of point number three and four. Point number three is, what I would say is it would be nice if more broadcasters showed an interest in disability sports because I don't think it should all just rest on Channel 4's shoulders. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it, the likes of Sky and BT and Amazon Prime, people like this, I think I think they can almost put disability sport events on the TV, as it were, and have slightly less pressure on the viewing figures. Yeah. So I think that's one. I think, I think other broadcasters um, could and should show more of a of so an interest take the risk in the way and sort of have yeah. a go trying to see they can grow that space yeah and, and actually in fairness the BBC have done have done that bit with wheelchair basketball and putting things on, on the red button and stuff like that you know they are putting those out there and actually that's one thing that I'm quite passionate about passionate about now okay I'm a freelancer now but I'm, I've got a tie to the BBC and I'm doing quite a lot for the BBC I've said to you know people high up in BBC sport that the BBC still have a responsibility to do as much para sport coverage as as we can and do it as well as we can regardless of whether Channel 4 have the Paralympic rights you know the BBC can still make an impact on disability sport a massive impact even when the Paralympics are on people go to the BBC sport website yeah as a first port of call sure they're watching Channel 4 in their millions and they might end up going to the Channel 4 website of course and and actually um what I would say and partly because I know them very well and sort of work for them and I do genuinely think they do a brilliant job Channel 4's social stuff on the Paralympics is brilliant you know at C4 Paralympics on Twitter Facebook etc is brilliant but I think in terms of going to find results and, and, and interviews and things I do think people still go to the BBC Sport website because it's so um, what's the word ubiquitous isn't it like yeah. we all probably wake up in the morning and either on phones or laptops or whatever, we check, check yeah, out BBC Sport or whatever. So I think that's that's crucial, and I think obviously Five Live have a role to play in that as well. And then my final point, which actually I think is is probably the most important, I think the, um, the, the 
federations and associations and the IPC and all these people also have a responsibility to think about the way the sports events are packaged up. Because I think I think Parasport has to sort of look at maybe the explosion of women's sport, for example, in the last few years and go, okay, well how have they how have they done that and, and how have they packaged up events? And what I mean by that is if Channel Four feed back to the IPC that say the the World Para Athletics didn't get brilliant viewing figures in 2017. I think the the you know the the governing bodies then have an uh, an obligation to go. Okay, well, how can we make that more of an attractive proposition for viewers? And I think the way you do that is potentially like having the athletics and swimming world championships running at the same time in the same place, or you add other sports. Yeah. So then Channel Four can go. Oh, okay. Well, tonight on more for or you know or the BBC could win the rights or Sky could win the rights or whatever it is but tonight you're gonna we're gonna have live athletics going on at the same time as um, you know we're building up to a wheelchair basketball match mm-hmm. um, tonight I think they're, they're trying to do this aren't they there's the European Games this year yes. where in, in the in cool. the non-disabled world I think they're bringing together s- yeah. a few different sports and it's like the European Championships mm-hmm. for all of these Come sports on. And then, the, and then the Commonwealth as well does the same. You know, the Commonwealth is a different kettle of fish again, but actually brings together lots of stuff at the same time. Yeah. I think that kind of needs to be looked at, and I think it would help the smaller sports if, you know, call it what, what you want to call it, but say like there's a European Games or something where, you know, boccia and judo and table tennis and maybe one of the kind of bigger sports, if you like, the athletics and then maybe wheelchair basketball are all having their European championships at the same time in the same city that would be appealing to a broadcaster and I think that would get that would get viewers um, I, I, I do think I mean maybe uh, th- this perhaps is a controversial thing to say and it's maybe not what people want to hear but I, I do think there has to be an acceptance at a certain level that Parasport is never going to consistently get the same ratings as non-para sports. I don't think that should be the aim. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should go, well, um, you know, X number of million people watch Usain Bolt's 100 metres final a few years back, and so why did only a fraction of that number watch Johnny Peacock's 100 metres final? I'm not sure we should be aiming for parity because I don't actually think it's realistic. You know, Usain Bolt's 100 metres final, for example, or let's just call it the men's Olympic 100 metres final, is like the pinnacle. It's yeah, it's the blue, it's the blue ribboned event. And sure, Johnny Peacock's 100 metres final is also a big deal, but there are also a number of other 100 metres finals at the Paralympics. So straight away, it's a bit, it's a bit diluted. And actually, I can't remember who it was, but somebody put this to me really, really well, that when just. Kind of, I know Bolt's obviously retired now, but just to keep using him as an example, when Bolt wins the 100 metres final, you know he is the fastest man on the planet at that point. You can't actually say the same about Johnny Peacock or any of the other Paralympic 100 metres champions. They are the fastest man in their category. He might be the fastest man with you know, one, one leg. He might be the fastest man with... with with two blades or whatever it might be but that 
the thing that the Olympics will always have is you can say that no human being has ever run as fast as that person that we've just watched. No human being has ever jumped as high or jumped as far or swam as quickly or, you know, so the Olympics will always have those definitive things yeah. that will, will, that will always make them the, the, you know, it will always make them the thing that people want to watch. I don't mean this in a kind of we should be grateful way because that would sound very um, weak and just, oh, well, you know, we should be happy with what we've got. But I do think sometimes there's a danger in, in the Paralympic world and actually in the disability world that you're, by striving for exact parity, you kind of lose sight of any progress that you've made. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, 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 we, I think we should be satisfied and quite stunned, actually, that multi-millions of people will tune in for a Johnny Peacock race or an, uh, you know, an Ellie Simmons race or, and we should of course keep striving to make that figure higher Yeah, I just think it's quite damaging when, when people say well no we've still got long, a long way to go because this Parasport event was watched by a fraction of the number of people that watched the Olympic you know actually it's, it's being watched by an enormous number of people yeah yeah. And the the comparison I made to women's sport, I think, also stands up in that, sure, you absolutely want more and more and more people to start tuning into the Women's FA Cup final, for example. But I can't envisage a time when as many people watch the Women's FA Cup final as the Men's FA Cup final. And I'm not sure necessarily that... I think you can tie yourself in knots thinking, well, how can we make them level? Yeah. I'm not sure you can make them level. Yeah. Okay. But you can make you can make the women's game, or in our you know in my case in our case the para event, you can try and make them as as impressive and as successful as you yeah. possibly can. And we should all be striving for that. And I'm striving for that. And we're all trying to get more coverage. But be happy with where we are now, and be happy with like the, and I can never say this word, so it's a stupid word to try and say live on the air, trajectory yeah. of where we're heading. Don't worry. Be happy and keep yeah, thank you. Keep building on it for sure. Don't give up. Don't don't accept like you know a drop off. Yeah. Stop hitting yourself over the head if you like because you're not level. Yeah. You know you're not yeah, completely yeah, yeah. equal. Yeah. And as I say, some people listening might might think that's an outrageous thing to say, or they might be a bit disappointed to hear me say that. Turns it off and But I I yeah I think I I think there is a there's a freedom I think and there's a sort of slight I think there's a kind of happiness in going do you know what wow actually we're doing really well here let's Mm. keep this going rather than there's a subtle difference isn't it we're doing really well let's keep going I think is a much more positive way of looking at things than we're doing really well but god we've got such a long way to go and we're still yeah you know you get it it. you get it it. definitely yeah so I mean that's an incredibly long answer to what was a fairly simple question but I do think there's a lot of factors at play My name's Grace and I'm a Why Can't We journalist. You can read some of my articles over at whycan'twe.co.uk. In terms of your broadcasting then, do you think that there's more um, people now being involved behind the scenes, you know, the people who are like us, mm, off screen, mm. trying to make a difference, trying to bring these sporting stories to life? Yeah. Do you think that's improving as well? Across, the, across the whole of the industry, not yeah, just the BBC or Channel 4? No question, yeah. And... You know, to be fair, I'd have to sort of tip my hat to the Channel 4 production trainee scheme, which has brought lots of um, 
young or younger disabled people through into production roles within the TV industry and um, I know lots of them I've been involved with lots of them and, and, and in touch with lots of them and I know that quite a number have not only had their sort of break into television through that scheme but they've then built on that themselves and are moving up the ladder yeah. you know into yeah. sort of more senior roles and you know if that if that keeps going and I guess this comes back to my long rambling answer just before <laughs> keep that going and the results will be hugely positive and in a few years time those those disabled people that came into the TV industry as researchers, for example, under that scheme, give it another five, ten years, they will be they will be series producers, they you know, program editors, you know, some of them will be broadcasters themselves, I imagine. And that's you know, that's when you'll start to see like the real change. Yeah. As I say, I, I think it would be a negative thing to go Oh well, we've we've brought X number of people, disabled people, into the industry. But God, look, like, look at how the ratios are still really bad, and all of all, all of all of that. Because I think that's actually a sort of negative way of of looking at it. I would rather go look at the number of people we've brought in. How can we keep on building this, and how can we help those people that have been brought in to keep progressing? Because then, and actually, this sort of ties back to the, like you know, the answer about Rose on Strictly, and you know, and and the disabled people in general on TV the more you keep pushing that and trying to improve that the more it will start to happen just naturally Yeah, and that's when you'll see the ratios really start to improve and make kind of significant progress is when it's just happening it's just happening because if you know what I mean it's yeah. happening because there will then be disabled people sort of in, in relatively senior positions who will then start to hire other disabled people or they'll start to put their own programs in place and yeah, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's exciting. I think it's sure. You know, what, what's the? F- I mean, I'm not even sure. <laughs> I'm not even actually sure what is the percentage now in terms of like so disabled people in the country. I mean, I, I hear all so sorts of. So one in five is supposed. One in five. So twenty percent okay. of the, the UK is supposed to have a disability, okay. according to the latest stats. If that's changed. I might be wrong. Yeah, um, and people can message and say it's wrong. Well, it's yeah, I mean, because I, 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 I'm not a fan of the sort of stats approach or the figures approach necessary I, I think it's more important to to sort of learn and hear about the experiences of the people I think I think that's I think that's more important if yeah. if, um, if a 20 year old disabled person has come into the TV industry through the 2012 production trainee scheme and then by the time let's say Paris 2024 happens they're a program editor that to me is much more significant progress than just purely looking at the numbers. Yeah, I agree. And in terms of that role model thing as well, I think that that's quite key that we've got these people who are in authoritative positions, mm. hard to say. <laughs> um, but there's there's those people to sort of look up to and think, hold on, this person's achieved so much and we can get to that level. Mm. And I'm going to be honest, I look to you sometimes and think <laughs> this you know, amazing journey that you've been on and you're now series producer you've been very high up in the industry um, and as someone who's still you know start the career if you like hopefully I can plan the ladder <laughs> um, we'll see in a few years time but you look up to those people and think hold on there's an opportunity here that the industry is changing when you were growing up did you look at anyone at all and think I want to be like them or you want to try and get to that level with a disability with a disability Probably not, actually. No, I, I, 
as I say, from a broadcasting point of view, like my broadcasting heroes were, to my knowledge, you know, non-disabled. Um, when I, I don't know, I mean, it's, 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 it's difficult, I suppose, when I was thinking about being like a journalist or working in production, that was all just very much kind of in my head. I wasn't, I wasn't, I knew I wanted to do it. And I knew that from bits of work experience I'd done and like the academic side of my life, I knew I could do it. You know, I knew I could write mm. relatively well. And then when I got involved in student radio, I sort of learned that I could, you know, hopefully sort of speak quite well about stuff as well. And, and when I got my first job with BBC TV Sport in 2009, I was lucky enough to work at the old television centre and... Martin Webster, who's this incredibly... He was this incredibly experienced, talented director. He's, he, he had won all sorts of awards. You know, if we're talking about somebody to look at and, and aim towards, like, this guy, you know, was the man. Yeah. And he had, um, he had acquired motor neurone disease. So by the time I was starting in 2009, right. he was still, still working but he had motor neurone disease. And I, I remember actually quite clearly because he was in a wheelchair by this point and he had, um, he had an assistant with him in the office. Okay. And I actually do remember quite clearly sort of then starting myself in the same office and thinking, oh, right, okay. Um, I'd never... I suppose I, I had... I had never seen somebody with an assistant in that sense in, in any of the offices I'd worked. And... I actually didn't really need an assistant with me in a kind of office environment. But what it did do was it kind of opened my eyes to, all right, okay, so that, that, can, actually, that can actually happen, can it? You can have somebody with you. And, and actually, when I go on trips, and even now this weekend up in Salford, you know, I have somebody come in and help me, and um, not just sort of on the kind of more personal side of things away from the job, but they set up equipment for me. You know, when I go to football matches, they'll carry my bag, plug in everything. Right. Um, you know, maybe hold microphones for me, get my half-time cup of tea, that kind of thing. So I, I absolutely have helpers now in my professional life. And I suppose looking back, Martin Webster was the first person I'd seen with in, that. With that. Yeah. And Martin actually sadly died in, in 2011. So actually, in a sense, I was very fortunate to have any crossover with him at all and see him operating like that. Because yeah. at that time, you know, he was still working in in TV galleries and I mean I don't know whether he was even able to get into TV trucks because the access for TV trucks is terrible you know I can't really even get in them um, but sort of TV galleries you know in studios yeah. and things I'm sure were, were okay for him so I suppose he had an impact on me but I, but I didn't know he was going to be there if you know what I mean yeah yeah he had an impact on me and I suppose in a sense he was a role model to me but once I had started myself. But it was a massive reassurance to look across and see like somebody, as I say, super experienced, super talented, and go, okay, you know, and just see somebody like working in a different way to everyone else mm -hmm. and working in a way that I, I suppose in the back of my mind I knew, oh, if I get more experience, I am gonna need somebody with me as well. Yeah. So that that was that was positive. And then I suppose on the broadcasting side, I didn't really have any disabled role models. Um, in broadcasting but anybody coming through now will have a whole host of you know all the Channel 4 presenters with disabilities and, and, and all of those guys and girls somebody coming through now will have lots of people to look at and go 
Yeah, well, I, I want to be like there. Yeah, you know, if, yeah. if that had been around in my day, I would have been idolising Des Lynham, but I would have also been looking at, you know, JJ Chalmers or, you know, Ed Jackson or, or, or any of these people and going, mm-hmm. hmm, okay, right, if they're doing it, I, I can do it too. So it's, yeah. you know, it's great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's definitely an improvement and we can see more and more mm. disabled people, not just on screen, but behind the scenes as well. And you can only improve from there. Mm. In terms of doing disability sports, so you said about how you went to the chill factor the other day. Yeah. And you also had to go sit down and uh, sit skiing, didn't you? Yes, I did. How was that for you? <laughs> how did you get on? Yeah, well, firstly, it was great fun. I mean, it was great fun. And um, my producer had called me a few weeks ago to say, look, we're doing this, this Winter Paralympics preview. We'd like you to kind of co present the programme. And, um, you know, we're thinking of doing something at Chill Factor. And I said, great. And that was all set up. And then a few days later, he called to say, actually, if, if, if we do do the programme from Chill Factor, we should, we should get you to have a go at skiing and, and, you know, record it all and play it out in the air. And so I said to him, I'd actually had a go at uh, kind of, you know, standing up skiing just okay. after the Pyeongchang Paralympics. Right, OK. Uh, Did you actually go out to Pyeongchang as well? I was out in Pyeongchang, but the, the attempt I had um, to ski was when I came home because oh, okay. I'd been working on the Channel 4 coverage of, of the Pyeongchang Games um, for Whisper, the production company. And you might remember that our main studio was actually at Hemel Hempstead Snow Centre. It was back in the UK. And, you yeah. know, Claire Balding and, and Johnny Peacock were there. And uh, Lee McKenzie as well. So we had our rap party when everybody came back from Korea. We had our party at Hemel Hempstead Snow Centre. And it was while I was there that a couple of the instructors kind of came, came and said hello and said, you know, why, why don't you come and have a, have a go, have a lesson? <laughs> so um, I had a go standing up and it's one of the rare occasions where I sort of just had to admit defeat, actually. <laughs> I, um, you know, the combination of my disabilities made it very difficult. Uh, so my artificial leg on the left-hand side means that from about my thigh downwards I couldn't I couldn't really feel the ski if you know what I mean and yeah, you know yeah. like I can't you know my left foot's completely sort of prosthetic so I can't I can't feel the ski underneath me and the ski right. was sliding forward sliding backwards I couldn't you know I have a sort of slight lean on me anyway and I couldn't I couldn't get like my body weight in the right position I was forever like I was either leaning back too much, leaning forward too much or whatever, all of, all of these things. And then when you add in the fact that I don't have, like, you know, full-length arms to put out and balance as well, I just, you know, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I couldn't do it. And it was just one of the, as I say, it's a sort of... I like to think it was a kind of rare thing, but it was a thing that I where I just simply had to say, do you know what? <laughs> I, could try, I could keep trying this for weeks, but I'm not going to be able to do it, you know, and yeah, I just yeah. have to accept that. Are there um, any other sort of power sports or, or winter power sports you... you haven't taken on or you'd like to take on or anything that you so it's funny you ask that so this same producer so after our show on Thursday night who is this producer it sounds like uh, so yeah Paul Paul Fletcher from Five Live came up with this why don't you try the sit ski thing but actually after the show he's so friends with Paul yeah (laughs) after the show I texted him saying right what other Paralympic sports can I try (laughs) because it had been great fun yeah um Having said that, when I look at the other sports, I mean, I, I dare say there's a way for me to try curling. I could, because I could, po- I could probably actually slide it with my foot. Okay. From a kind of seated position in a wheelchair, I, I imagine I could probably have a go at curling. Mm. Um, but then everything else, because I couldn't ski standing up, I don't think I'm going to be able to snowboard standing up. 
Okay. And then there's obviously the cross country skiing and all yeah, that. So yeah. we can probably rule rule or rule rule so those out in terms yeah. of trying. Um, sled hockey or para ice hockey, as it's called now. I'm not. Yeah. I, that seems a bit much. I'll be honest, I've had to go at that. Have that's, you? That's very, very hard, so okay. good luck with that. Yeah. The one I'd really love to try, but sadly it's not in the Beijing programme, hopefully next time, would, would be para bobsleigh. Yes, yeah. I was, it's actually not going to be next time either. Is it not next no, time either? Right, that's a shame. Fingers crossed we back soon, yeah. Um, I'd, I'd really, really love to, to, to try that. I mean, again, I'm assuming there'd be a classification where I could sort of start the run sat in the bobsleigh already because I think the whole sort of sprinting and then getting in would be, well. <laughs> would be carnage. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think there might be a lot of blood involved in that if I try and do that. But if I can start sat in the thing already, yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to try that. That'd be good. That'd be yeah. good. I always like the idea of the bobsleigh, but after watching cool runnings, <laughs> I think that just goes too fast. I'd be too scared. Yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of it, but then I think once I got going, I'd be too scared. <laughs> so maybe we could get our own little power of team. So me and Sean will yes. do the running. Yes. And do you want to do the driver in the front? Or well, again, that... actually, depending on how the steering kind of works, I, if I could get hold of the, I think it's like on straps, isn't yeah, it, or something. Yeah. If I could get hold of them with my feet, I could be a driver. There you go. So we've got our own team set up. Yeah. Here. We need um, one more person. Okay. And then Corey Mapp is a um, Corey Mapp, good brilliant. person. We'll, we'll ask yeah. him to come along. Um, so Corey, if you're listening, please yeah. come along. And I like that. Join our little team. We'll see you at the... Uh, so what, 20... 30 then we'll yeah be we'll be we're going for that this is where the campaign starts for it now exactly yeah so maybe, yeah. we'll see you over there soon <laughs> but now I mean you know and then summer Paralympics who knows I did do I, I was a keen swimmer as a, as, a, as a child and sort of a teenager I mean just briefly after the Rio Paralympics I worked with Graham Edmonds who was a GB um, Paralympic swimmer in, in Beijing I think Athens yeah. as well he was a pundit on Five Live and he said on air like, Andy, why don't you, you know, why don't you come and have a go, and I'll time you and everything, and 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 it became a thing on the radio that I was then going to try and become a swimmer in time okay. for the Tokyo Games, you know, as we thought four years later at the time. I was like, no, because no, no. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking I don't like early mornings, and, <laughs> and actually I must admit on my mind I was thinking, well, actually, really, I want to be a broadcaster. I'm not cut out to be yeah. an athlete. Yeah. But but Graham was like, okay, no, no, come on, try, try, try. So I I. I think I went along to my local pool at least once and I got my wife to time me and stuff and Graham kind of gave me a rough idea of what my classification would be I think off the top of my head he said I'd be an S3 I think maybe okay. and then I was quite relieved and impressed actually to find out that my times like my best time was about 15-20 seconds off the S3 world record oh, and wow. I, as in I was pleased that it was so I was so far off yeah oh I see Oh, I because think that's actually quite impressive. No, because that would be a lot. If I had to go swimming, I'd be about two hours behind. No, 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 no. Because you're yeah, <laughs> over fifty meters, like twenty I'd, seconds is a lot. I'd still be. Okay. I'd still be I'll take your word for at it. The start. I was pleased that it was so much. Yeah. Because I was, I was, I had this sort of slight worry in the back of my mind that, like, I don't really keep fit as such, you know, okay. and I was worried that I'd get in the pool, swim, and I'd be like five seconds off the world record, and I, I thought, God, that would be like. How would I explain that to people? You know, I would be almost embarrassed. Right, okay. So I was actually really quite pleased that, yes, you know, unfit, non-athlete me was way, way way behind 
what the best S3 swimmers in the world can do. Yeah. So that was actually quite interesting. You know, that was quite eye-opening to me. And like, the Paralympic okay. dream of yeah, you know, getting gold medal ended there. Exactly, yeah, the gold medal's gone. <laughs> but I must admit, I sort of do like the idea of actually having a go at, at some of the summer Paralympic sports, yeah. maybe in the run-up to Athens. I met Matt Stutzman, the, the armless archer once, the American guy who... Yeah. who does shoots archery by holding? Yeah, he shoots with his feet, but he hold, holds the bow with his with his mouth. Um, I fancy having a little go at that and, okay. and a few other things. But um, anyway, I've got I've got enough on my plate trying to yeah. trying to make a success of broadcasting without <laughs> trying to be an athlete as well. It I would think, only ever be for a bit of fun, I think. Yeah, I do something called like hashtag challenge Peter, which is taking on a disability sport and showing how bad I am at sports compared to these <laughs> athletes. Um, so maybe we invite you along to one of them. We can. It's have the kind of thing Alex, Alex Brooker's good at this kind of thing. Like yeah, just exactly. lob Alex Brooker into any situation and he'll, he'll, he'll at least make you laugh. Exactly, yeah. Hello, I'm Peter and I'm the founder of Why Can't We? Why not subscribe to this podcast and head to whycan'twe.co.uk to find out more? What would you give advice to people who possibly listen to podcasts in terms of stepping into the world of broadcast um, or if they're sports and athletes in terms of their own media career and Deal with the media. Okay, so I'll deal with the sort of non-athletes first. I think, and I don't want to sound like an old man here, but I think young people now have a real, real opportunity to go and create their own broadcasting. As in, in my generation, we might have had to kind of wait for a work experience opportunity or a job to come along. I mean, I think back to that nerdy, you know, writing a newspaper page out that had nowhere to go that was just me doing that in my bedroom and nobody saw that you know and I think back then and possibly even still now it's probably quite difficult to sort of break through and get an opportunity to write proper articles for a newspaper for example Mm -hmm. but the reason why I think it's a brilliant time to to, it's a brilliant time to be alive it's a brilliant time to be trying to get into the media is that with the technology available now and social media and YouTube and all sorts of things like this you can do your own stuff. You know, you're like, you, you know, you guys doing this podcast, you're putting the podcast out, it's getting listened to, it's getting shared. Back in the mid-90s, I might have been able to get a tape, a tape player and record, you know, my thoughts on disability sport in 1997 or whatever, yeah. but I wouldn't have been able to send it anywhere. I wouldn't have yeah, been able, nobody would have heard it. I wouldn't have been able to really interview anyone. I wouldn't have known how to go about, like, recording a landline phone call or whatever or anything like that. And one of the golden bits of advice I sort of try to give people, and I know there might well be accessibility issues in here, so forgive me if that's the case for, for you listening, but with a phone or a laptop or a social, and a social media account or a YouTube account, I think you can create your own showreel. You can create your own journalism work. If you play for a sports team, whether it be at school or university or in a Sunday league team with your mates or whatever try to carve out an opportunity to interview some of your teammates after the match you know interview your coach your teacher whatever and with a bit of basic kind of learning you can edit that piece yourself you could you know you can write the script for it you can write your own voiceover you can record your voiceover you could possibly even add graphics if that's your your thing and it can go somewhere you know if if your if your sports team has a instagram or facebook even or whatever it can go somewhere and people can see it. I had um, a student, nothing to do with sport actually, but I had a student 
um, that I was kind of like mentoring who completely off his own bat he wrote letters to I think it was about 15 pubs and cafes and restaurants in his mm. local town and a few of them wrote back and he went he went and filmed like little promotional videos wow. for for the pub or the restaurant okay. and he did the whole thing himself and it just you know he, he as I say he wrote a letter I can offer my services for, for free or you know maybe some of them might have paid him but essentially yeah. I'll come down I'll just do a bit of filming if you don't mind I'll, I'll make sure all the customers are happy with me filming and then you know these pubs and restaurants are now using his video on their Facebook page okay right. it's not going to get 3 million views but it's going to get views in the hundreds or the thousands and it's made a big difference to that pub and it's, I think it's that kind of thing I think you can be really proactive now and get your stuff out there rather than sitting at home and waiting for somebody to you know, give the opportunity to you. In terms of the athletes, I mean, I think athletes are pretty well prepared now for the media side of things. And I think any, any athletes who are looking at a, a future in, in media probably get access to, you know, media training and things like that, yeah. you know, with that okay. in mind. I think, yeah, I don't want to embarrass her. I don't know what her plans are for example but when you see somebody like Ellie Robinson and the interview she did with Channel 4 yeah. and the way she conducts herself when she comes on television and and uh, you know I think she's written an article just in the last few days about um, positive bias and, and quotas mm-hmm. positive discrimination sorry and, and disability quotas in employment she's just well she's just brilliant but she, she is a brilliant talker she's a brilliant thinker I think there's no advice I could give her because she's sort of doing it all already and it's yeah. just a case of somebody like, you know, giving her more exposure to, to, to you know, to, to get herself out there, I suppose, a bit more, if that's what she wants, of course. So I think, I think the athletes that have thought about journalism and the media probably know where to go and how to get there. Um, and if they don't, I suppose then the main thing is that when they are given an opportunity to to do an interview on TV or radio and then really try and show how eloquent you are and how in touch with things you are and there's, there's a number of the Paralympians that Tani and I spoke to and on the Five Live coverage of Tokyo where you know we would come off air and go wow I wasn't such and such a great talker yeah. and or oh they're bound to be you know you look at like Steph Reed you know Steph Reed's on Dancing on Ice in, in the new year she is a smart cookie and she's completely switched on and she she is a brilliant talker and she's yeah. a great advocate for various disability issues and it just sort of seems to come quite naturally to her whereas other other people might have to work at it but Steph and Ellie and a, and a number of other um, you know Natasha Baker's another one just they are brilliant spokespeople already yeah and it means that as and when they move into media work they, they should fit in very nicely yeah, yeah. Yeah. And do you think that's kind of the passion they have as well for not just the sports, but also for the, the disability rights, etc.? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that helps. I don't think you necessarily need it, but I, I think it shows that they're just rounded individuals with, with opinions on more than just like, you know, how am I going to beat my personal best? Yeah. Or yeah. Um, they're not just completely soul-focused and they're... Uh, maybe I'm not allowed to mention another podcast, but the podcast I present for the, the Paralympic Committee, again, oh, with, the, yeah, <laughs> with, the, with the international athletes yeah. we, we've spoken to as well, some of them come on and are like, wow, God, like, um, even athletes that I had never 
sort of really come across before come on and they speak so well and you go yeah. these people really need a bigger audience yeah and hopefully you know the likes of yourself and me and and, and all sorts of people can try and give them that exposure that as well, so. um yeah again it's all about this sort of snowball effect isn't it yeah like, exactly you know and, and i think retaining a sense of positivity as well try not to get bogged down in the we're doing well oh but actually we're still a long way off it's like we're doing well and let's keep on doing well and let's keep on building um, if that doesn't sound too evangelical <laughs> no, that's great I wanted to ask also we've spoke about disability sport and you also have an involvement in mainstream sports what is your favourite sport yeah I'm glad you've asked this actually because as 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 much as I love parasport and want to continue working in parasport and sort of owe I owe parasport a lot of my career, particularly now doing the broadcasting stuff, it is hugely important to me to keep doing non parasport as well. It stops me from being pigeonholed. And I think, you know, I think ask any person of any disability out there, I think one of the things we fear most is we we like to be our individual selves and we don't like to be pigeonholed into oh here's the disabled person or you know so it is vital to me that I continue to be a football reporter and a you know golf a golf reporter and absolutely keep the para sport going I mean the way I put it I mean I'll be completely honest with you when I came home from Tokyo and had conversations with the bosses at Five Live you know touch would all seem to have gone well and I said look I in a sense I want to feel like the unofficial Paralympic correspondent for Five Live as in if a Paralympic story breaks in this country I want Five Live to pick up the phone to me Yeah. but I don't want to do that if it's at the cost of me doing the other sport you know golf mm. and football and, and the, the other things and, 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 you know, I think that's hopefully how it's going to be. So, you know, this, this weekend is a perfect example. I came up to Salford to present a Paralympic programme, but I'm also now staying on and, and doing golf. You know, that is that's perfect. That is perfect to me. So it's a weird one, you know, because, like, ego-wise, I, I suppose I do want to be either a person or the person that people think of when they think about Paralympic sport on the radio, but not just that. Yeah. And... Um, so that is really important to me, and, and yeah, the the golf is my sport. Really, I play golf. I love golf. I watch golf, and 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 actually, and again, I don't I don't mean this as a, as an insult to the Paralympics in any way. But when I got the call to say, Andy, we want you to work at the Open Golf in the summer just gone, and actually looking ahead to St Andrews next summer as well, that actually meant as much to me as working at the Paralympics. Because I was like, wow, that is that is the one. I watched every Open Golf since I was, you know, four, five, six years old with my dad. You know, I watched every single Open Championship every summer, and to be working on it and interviewing all the top players in the world last summer, and now to look ahead to to St Andrews, which would be like incredibly special next summer. That, as I say, that means as much to me as going to Tokyo. It really does. So um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that can continue, and I don't yeah. make a hash of it. Yeah, fingers crossed, definitely. Yeah. Um, and so, are you actually going out for the Winter Paralympics, or are you based in Salford? Um, I think I am going to be working on the Winter Olympics and Paralympics, but just in terms of where that's 
from, it's all still a little bit um, up in the air at the moment because, I mean, currently the Chinese quarantine rules are pretty pretty strict. And I think this goes across the board, you know, BBC TV coverage, radio coverage, Channel 4's Paralympics coverage. I think we're probably all in the same sort of bubble of, of like, wondering how those games are going to work. Um, not just for us, but for the athletes as well. And, I mean, you know, obviously they, they've said no crowds again. Um, or certainly no overseas crowds coming in so yeah a bit of uncertainty again which is a shame because you just think oh when is this going to end and when's <laughs> you know when when a sporting event's going to be completely back to normal yeah. again uh, I mean I've, I've got absolutely no idea what the what the rules are going to be like for the Commonwealth Games for example in Birmingham but even just to be thinking about that and and thinking about like what what what's the situation going to be is 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 mad isn't it because i remember like when the pandemic started and there's that gradual realization that oh okay you know premier league is going to be affected and like, premier league's cancelled oh god what's going to happen about the olympics and Paralympics? oh they're they're postponed you would never ever ever have believed that an event in 2022 like say the commonwealth's would would be affected would you no, you know back then you not would have been so. like well it's bound to be over by then yeah. it's bound to be yeah and as i say i think you know from just general life in the uk at the moment i imagine the commonwealth games will go ahead with crowds and and, and everything like that but it might be a case that we still have to do ptr tests and we still have to be careful about distancing and things like that and just the idea that we're still having to think of those things two years later is is unbelievable because yeah. then you start because what what that does of course is you start then going well, I mean, Paris will be fine. In Paris, the world will be back to normal. We'll all be we'll all be back to normal, and it will just be like London 2012 again. But actually, what it does to you is it makes you think. Well, actually, is that is that true? You know, I mean, we all hope it is, of course. But yeah. we were thinking this about 2022, two That's years true. ago. That's so true. Um, I suppose the crazy thing is, at first we got told maybe stay at home for three weeks. Yeah, and then, yeah. This is it. Mm. You know. Um, that. Fingers crossed for Paris. I think I think we were talking earlier on about how London 2012 has such a big impact because I think also it being in the same time zone really helped allow audiences in the UK to watch the sports. Yeah. Hopefully with Paris being in 2024, that's going to be the same case and we're able to watch the sports grow and we'll see you know, the, the disabled Paris sports people grow in terms of their own coverage yeah. sporting success and just see that grow and grow and grow um, and hopefully Paris will be that next catalyst to oh, bring yeah. to a new talent uh, for me you know no crystal ball or anything but if Covid has sort of gone away in the sense of it affecting people's lives by then I think Paris 2024 is set to be the best Paralympics ever because because and like people people in this country might go no you know London is unbeatable <laughs> it's you know I think Paris will match London for uh, atmosphere um, and and broadcast exposure, and it will probably match London in terms of the British team's performance. But where I think it will top London is there has been this natural growth in the Paralympics anyway, so that there is now more more events, full stop. But there are more um, female events, there are more mixed events. You know that the actual sport program is probably in a better place than it was in London 2012 um, you know the venues are going to match London I mean some of the you know the images of the venues you see and the plans they've got are just 
unbelievably good. And you saw from the handover from Tokyo, both the Olympics and Paralympics, uh, you know, they're putting their heart and soul into it and a lot of money into it and things like that. And it's, it is going to be a great show. The, the fact that, you know, and again, if COVID's gone away, British people, you know, Paris is within reach. You know, we like easily within reach. You could actually day trip to the Paralympics if you really wanted to, I'm sure, or, or you know, one, one overnight at most. I mean, you know, I was thinking about if I'm working on it, I might even actually drive to that Paralympics. You know, if, if, they, if the BBC can find me a parking spot somewhere in Paris where, where we're staying or wherever, yeah. I'll drive to it because, yeah. you know, why, why wouldn't you? It'd be, you know, it'd be a fun little adventure to drive to the games and... I think it'll be mega. And actually, one final reason I think Paris will be mega from a British point of view is we saw, and this was really vital, I think, we saw new stars emerge in Tokyo yeah. across all of the sports. Yeah. And that's really important because I had a slight concern that the stars, the stars who made their name at London 2012 are beginning to come towards, towards the end of things. Some of them, anyway. Yeah. You know, we've seen Ellie Simmons retire and... You know, Richard Whitehead looks like. I mean, you know, he made comments about his event and things like that. I don't know if he's going to be running in Paris. You know, David Weir, etc. Yeah. And and I think there was a sort of slight concern in the back of my mind that when those 2012 heroes started sort of disappearing from the stage, would the profile of the team go down with them? Yeah. But thankfully, you know, the the kind of Maisie Summers, Newtons, and and Reece Dunn you know, in, in the swimming and then obviously Sarah Story breaking yeah. the record and, 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 and probably now continuing on. And, you know, there's lots of athletics people we could mention as well and, and, and lots of people in the other sports, of course, Thomas as well. Young, obviously, kind of yeah. Yeah, yeah, Thomas Young, breath of fresh people. air, absolutely. You yeah. know, the wheelchair rugby team winning a gold medal now and we'll be looking to build on that. You know, there's, there's lots of reasons why actually the British team that go to Paris will be as exciting as the, as the London 2012 team was. Yeah. So I think that's also another reason to look forward, definitely. There you go. So if, if they don't do as well, we can go back to this podcast <laughs> and say, Andy, what happened? Yeah. So. I'll come up with some stat that backs You know, even if I'll be like, yes, probably, you know, 84% of the team <laughs> actually won a medal. So, uh, you know, but no, it's, um, yeah, I, I, as we say, I suppose Paris is still a long way off. And, yeah. and, and actually, you know, Beijing, okay, Beijing has, has sort of probably none of those things in its favour in terms of the atmosphere and the time zone and all of that kind of stuff but it, it, what it does have in its favour is you will see I think again a, um, a kind of a growth again from where the team was in Pyeongchang uh, and actually I suppose I would say just not to sort of answer your, your joke there but actually we might not see the number of medals matched from Pyeongchang but I think what we'll see is a wider kind of range of athletes and medals. You know, I think the curling team could win a medal this time. I think the skiing medals might well be, you know, spread out a little bit more. I, I hope, I hope at least one of our snowboarders can can win a medal this time. You know, so I think there'll be growth in that sense, even if the actual. Not necessarily saying that great britain will win more than the seven medals they won in pyeongchang but i just think there'll be a growth in the sense of like the team as a whole yeah yeah well fingers crossed we can see that <laughs> growth um we're actually going to be talking to james barnes miller aha okay so, yes there you go. he's a cool dude exactly so looking forward to seeing that chat as well <laughs> um bandy it was amazing talking to you uh, thank you so much for 
giving up your time and looking forward to seeing your career progress and also seeing <laughs> hopefully the well, industry continue to change well no like likewise thank, thanks very much i mean thanks for having me on and, and likewise looking forward to seeing your your progress personally but also the progress of this podcast and and sean are you going to be a sports presenter one day i'm hoping to go in that direction yeah as as things progress cool well there we go well we'll all be working on the same programs hopefully in the and future got our yeah and our bobsleigh team ah yeah we so. can't oh, yeah but that's true actually we can't let our media ambitions get in the way of that of exactly. that bobsleigh team yeah some bias <laughs> get out training now so yeah thank you very much again Andy and uh, speak to you soon thank you thank you if you enjoyed this podcast then don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts join us next time on this sport pod. See you then.